0: Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Writer Hera Lindsay Bird burst onto the literary scene with her eponymous poetry collection Hera Lindsay Bird. Bill Manhire, whose latest collection is Some Things to Place in a Coffin, has made a unique contribution to the canon of New Zealand poetry and to the literary landscape more generally. With Paris-based New Zealand poet Andrew Johnston, they discuss the development of the country's poetry practice and its likely trajectory. Please note, this session contains explicit language.
1: Welcome very much to this um... <coughs> the session at Auckland Writers' Festival um, with Bill Manha and Hera Lindsay Bird, old guard and new guard. Um, I'm not sure where that leaves me, but I think I'll be the lifeguard. So <laughs> if, if anyone feels out of your depth, just, <sighs> I'm not sure what I'll do then. But <laughs> so I'm Andrew Johnston, I'm going to be chairing the session, and I need to tell you that Uh, you should double-check that your phones are off, and also that uh, we welcome you sharing the festival on social media, but please do so with um, consideration for your uh, fellow audience members. So we're going to... I'm going to put some questions to to Berlin Tahira. We'll have questions from the audience later on, so if you do have a burning question, uh, you can hang on to it To then. Uh, We'll have microphones in the at the the tops of the aisles here for people to come up to. So, um, yeah, let's get underway. So it's wonderful to be here, for me to be here with Bill and and here, who I think of at the moment as sort of, you know, old guard, new guard is quite a good way of putting it. Um, Anyway, two of my favourite New Zealand poets. Uh, To talk about Bill first, to introduce Bill, Uh, many of you will know many things or some things about Bill, but there are quite a few things that Bill does, and I think what I find is that, you know, some people know some of them, not many people know all of them. Uh, He's best known as a poet and a teacher of creative writing, but he's written many other things besides poetry, and his wider contribution to New Zealand culture is huge uh, behind the scenes. In 1997, uh, Bill was made New Zealand's inaugural poet laureate, In 2005, he was appointed a Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit and was named an Arts Foundation of New Zealand Laureate. Bill has an honorary Doctorate of Literature from the University of Otago and he's also a Fellow of the Royal Society of New Zealand. So Bill taught English and creative writing for many years at Victoria University, where he founded the International Institute of Modern Letters. And the list of writers who have benefited from his courses reads like a a who's who of contemporary New Zealand writing, from back in the 80s, Barbara Anderson, Jenny Bornholt, Elizabeth Knox, right through to, uh, more recently, Eleanor Catton, Ashley Young, and and Hera Lindsay Bird. Um, Bill has published many books of poems since his first publications, Malady, I think it was, in 1970, and The Elaboration in 1972 both with illustrations by Ralph Holtry. And just last month, um, two new books by Bill came out, Uh, Some Things to Put in a Coffin, his first collection of poetry in how long? Seven years, something Mm -hmm. like that. And A Book of Riddles, Tell Me My Name. It's a book of riddles which has a CD in the back, and the riddles are put to music by the composer Norman Meehan, uh, sung by Hannah Griffin, is that right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there are photos in the book by Peter Perrier. So Bill's won many prizes for his books, um, including the Prime Minister's Award for Poetry in 2007. At times, he has seemed embarrassed by this list of prizes. I remember in 1992, I think it was, when Bill won for um, the book award for Milky Way Bar, his book Milky Way Bar, he told a story about a a kid standing next to his dad at a um, cash cash machine. And the cash comes out of the cash machine, and, and the kid says to his dad, you always win, dad. (laughs) <laughs> I prob- Bill told it much better than True I could... Story. True story. True <laughs> story. <laughs> yeah. So Bill's also published short fiction, most of which is now collected in uh, the stories of Bill Manhart, which came out two years ago. And he's also edited several of New Zealand's most successful anthologies of poetry and, and fiction. And as well as th- this recent book, uh, Tell Me My Name, he's also collaborated with Norman Meehan, on two albums, Buddhist Rain and Making Baby Float, and another book, um, These Rough Notes, which is a really beautiful book with photographs by Ann Noble, as well as the, the CD. Hera, um, Hera's book, his first book named after herself, Hera Lindsay Bird, came out this year, uh, last year, and um, on Tuesday, Hera won the Ockham New Zealand Book Award for best first book of poetry for her book. <laughs> Um, Hera has a, an MA in poetry from um, the Institute of Modern Letters in, in Wellington, where she won the, the Adam Prize in 2011. That's the, the prize for the best poetry manuscript. Is that right, the Adam Prize?
2: The, the best right across the board. Oh, right across the board. Yeah, okay. yeah the okay. total best. So okay. Eleanor Catton won it another year.
1: Oh, I see. And so Yeah. Great. And uh, Hera's work's been published in a wide uh range of magazines, a lot of magazines, The Toast, The Hairpin, Sport, Hue and Cry, The Spin-Off, The New Zealand Listener, and also Best New Zealand Poems. Even before Hera's book came out, two of her poems, um, as many of you know, kind of set the internet on fire. Uh, it's very rare to hear the words poetry and viral uh, in the same <laughs> sentence, <but laughs> except I guess if you might be talking about some 19th century poets. Um, <laughs> so, you know, rather than me try and tell that story, I wondered if I could ask Hera to tell that story.
0: Oh, the, the story of what yeah, well, people Monica, reading them on the internet? Yeah, Monica <laughs> and
1: Keith Stead, and then what happened, you know, with the kind of reaction and so
0: on. Um, well, I, you know, I, I knew I wanted a couple of new poems out just before my book came out. Um, and so I kind of... Um, yeah, I had these two newer ones, which hadn't been published anywhere, so they, they were kind of the last ones in my collection that didn't already belong to a journal, so I kind of sent them off to um, Steve Brawny as the spin-off, who had been kind of bugging me about them something for a little while. Um, yeah, but I totally didn't anticipate that they would be so um, widely read. It, yeah, it was quite... It's, it's funny, actually, the, the Keats is Dead one, um, people in New Zealand read, but the one that um, everyone overseas was really interested in was the Monica one from Friends. And it was quite a weird thing, actually, because they're two of my least favourite poems in my book. And so now now they're kind of, you know, if you you kind of search for my name, um, they're the first things that come up. So it was kind of a mixed blessing because it it was amazing to be read so widely before um, the book came out. But I also kind of, every time someone says, I've read your poems on the internet, I kind of go, oh. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, Yeah, and they were picked up. I mean, you had a lot of interviews from magazines. The Guardian wrote articles about you. It was really quite a big thing, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, well, I woke up one day and someone said, oh, you're in The Guardian. And they hadn't kind of asked me um, or, I mean, told me that they were kind of doing a, a little thing on me. So it was a total surprise. And the, the weird thing about the Guardian is, if you publish in New Zealand, like there were no comments forums. But as soon as my poems got onto the Guardian, there were suddenly like these kind of 300 long comment threads, furious comment threads, which was quite a weird thing. Almost before anyone in this country had even had a chance to read the whole book.
1: Yeah. What kinds of things were people furious about?
0: Um. <laughs> I th- I think that. Sh- well, the, the one that um, people were the angriest about was the Keats', Keats Dead poem. And I think that actually, I mean, people kind of talk about um, the reasons people didn't like that poem, because it was kind of shocking and it had some sexual content. But I actually think what, what really kind of pissed people off was that I kind of um, flippantly name, name-checked the deaths of a whole lot of um, really famous kind of American and British poets. Um, which you know, I think people saw as being really disrespectful to the canon, uh, which was totally not my intention because I actually only named poets I liked. I, I was careful only to write about poets I liked in that, that poem. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. yeah. Do, do you want to read the poem just to, to uh, <laughs> let people...
0: Yeah, all right. This is only the second time I've ever read this one out loud because... Um...
2: I'm going to leave the room. No
0: Keats is dead, so fuck me from behind. Keats is dead, so fuck me from behind. Slowly and with carnal purpose, some black midwinter afternoon while all the children are walking home from school. Peel my stockings down with your teeth. Coleridge is dead, and Auden too, of laughing in an overcoat. Shelley died at sea, and his heart wouldn't burn. And Wordsworth, they never found his body his widow, mad with grief, hammering nails into an empty meadow. Byron, Whitman, our dog crushed by a garage door, finger me slowly in the snowscape of your childhood, our dead floating just below the surface of the earth. Bend me over like a substitute teacher and pump me full of shivering arrows. Oh, emotional vulnerability, Bosnian folk songs, birds in the chimney. Tell me what you love when you think I'm not listening. Wallace Stevens' mother is calling him in for dinner, but he's not coming. He's dead too. He died 60 years ago, and nobody cared at his funeral. Life is real, and the days burn off like leopard print. Nobody, not even the dead, can tell me what to do. Eat my pussy from behind. Bill is not getting any younger.
1: So that was the poem that you absolutely had to read or absolutely had not to read. So, <laughs> you know. You know, there's a, there's a great poem by R.A.K. Mason, you know,
2: supposedly the first significant New Zealand poet, which starts Shakespeare, Milton, Keats are dead, Dunn lies in a lowly bed, and he ticks off the great canon of English poetry, and at the end he says, They are gone, and I am here. Boldly or stoutly? Anyway, one or the other. Boldly bringing up the rear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That that was such a... I remember um, when I was kind of debating whether or not I should put that poem in my book and I went to see Fergus and he said, oh, well, of course, and I was saying, should I um, change Bill Mannheim's name for someone I like less, you know? Um... And he was saying, no, you have to do it, because it's obviously a reference to that RK Mason poem. And I said, what are you talking about? And he, <laughs> and he showed me that photo, of, um, which is at the back of one of Bill's books, which is you standing at the chalkboard with, um, with that kind of phrase written on it. Oh, that's so that's right. Yeah. yeah, so it was this kind of like weird, airy moment where, I don't know, maybe I'd seen it 10 years ago and kind of internalised it somehow, but I actually didn't know that that existed. Yeah. yeah.
1: Some of the reaction to your, to your work, you know, uh, some people didn't like it and vehemently cursed it on the internet. And some people took it deeply, deeply seriously. And I, I, I spied on your Twitter feed the other day because I knew I had an idea how you might react to that. And you, had, you tweeted this little conversation between you and the rest of the world <laughs> and me. What if trees had little penises on them? World. Read Hera Lindsay Bird's uncompromising and fearless take on contemporary female sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> so that is, is that a little bit what happened afterwards?
0: Oh, yeah, totally. I, I think that it's, it's almost, you know, almost worse than being, um, having a, a, a review for someone hating you for the right reasons, as having a really a positive review of people liking you for the wrong reasons. Um, and... And I certainly had lots of really considered and thoughtful and intelligent reviews, but I also had kind of a lot of people who, um, I don't know, it didn't really feel to me like they, they had understood what I was trying to do. You know, I, I, yeah. Mm. So that was, that was me just kind of being a little bitch on the end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> One thing that's really interesting in your work, I think, is this question of how much is it you, know, you and how much is it not you a persona, a mask? especially given that the book is just named after you, like, um, as I think you said, somewhere like, you know, a Janet Jackson album. Um, and in the first poem in the book, you say, um, I mean 75% of this, <laughs> which I think is a great line because it suggests, you know, uh, anything that a poet writes, some of it is personal, some of it is not, you know? Where's the kind of line there? How how much of it for you if it's, if it's not 75, 25? Do you worry that people um, just take you completely straight? That they think that everything that you write that's got the first person singular in it is actually what you think?
0: I actually don't mind that very much. I mean, it's not true, but I don't mind people thinking that because um, I, I remember kind of in my classes, everyone, there was a while where everyone was so careful kind of not to, not to confuse the identity of the poet with the person writing the poem and everyone would say, "Oh, in that poem, you, and then they'd go, oh, I mean, the speaker. Um, And I, it's not that I kind of, um, you know, even anyone who writes autobiographically will tell you that, um, you know, obviously there's always kind of a performative aspect and you have to kind of, your work has to be in service to the the poem rather than the truth always. Um, But yeah, I'm not, I'm not, kind of especially bothered with people um, thinking that things are either literally true or not. Because I, for me, I think um, even the things that aren't literally true kind of feel emotionally true in a way. You know, it's that sometimes thing where you have to lie or, like, condense the, the, the truth of your life a little bit to, um, I don't know, to kind of maybe put a... Um, a greater truth on the page. Does that sound too wanky? I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's quite a crucial thing. There are all, all different sorts of truth, and sometimes people mistake autobiographical truth for, you know, emotional, psychological truth. Possibly. Hey, can
2: I just butt in and say oh. that the really great bit in the Keats' De- Dead poem, for me, which is clearly not true, you know, I know enough to know it's not true, is the bit where you say, Wordsworth, they never found his body. And then there's that line about his widow hammering nails into an empty meadow, is it? And that is, I, I can't think of a better description of grief and bereavement than that kind of sort of pointless mm. existential anger and distress. Just um, fantastic.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to um, Mexico recently and I've been translating some of my poems for the visit and um, they came back to me because they, they kind of thought at first the line meant that the widow plunged her, her fingernails into the soil. Mm. So that was kind of, yeah, no, but that's, that's the that's kind of what I Fingernails are pretty good too, actually.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This question of what's public and what's private, I wanted to ask Bill, um, you know, you've written a lot of public poems. You've written poems like Erebus Voices and mm. poem in your new book, uh, No One Unto God. But you're quite a private person, and you've written about this quite interestingly in uh, the anthology 20 Contemporary New Zealand Poets. We asked each poet for a a statement, and uh, I hope you don't mind if I read this. Um, Bill said, I started writing poems out of a deep shyness and social awkwardness, and because words could sound magical, probably I hoped to project an image of mystery and sophistication while remaining somehow out of sight, though I don't recall thinking this at the time but certainly what looked like self-expression was more like Palisade and Refuge, some sort of secrecy machine. And I think this is still true for plenty of the poems. All right. Does that still hold true, you think? you still uh, The poems are a kind of defense as well as a, a projection? Yeah, I think they're a kind of defense,
2: but that, that, that statement is also about my troubles, I suppose, with, with the idea of the poet Putting a capital P at the <laughs> rather than a small p on yeah. the word poet, I, I you know, the, the, the sort of grandiose or Shelley poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. I don't believe any of that stuff, I, you know. Uh, so I, I don't like the idea of the poet being a self-important, over-significant, uh, bombastic person. And you know, I mean, I, I think a poem can be pretty important, yeah. but the person who writes it. seems to me not all that important.
1: Sorry, that's gone sideways from your question. Yeah, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's a bit like what George Saunders said in a session at midday today. After he's revised something uh, many, many times, it becomes smarter than him. And I think that sometimes (laughs) that's how poets feel, that somehow magically the the poem becomes, uh, you know, gets away from you.
2: Well, if he just wrote out the thoughts that are in your head, my God, it would be boring, you know? (laughs) Uh, I mean, Robert Creeley quotes some of the painter Franz Kline, and someone goes up to Kline and says to him, why is your work so obscure and, you know, deliberately mystifying? You know, it's not art sort of uh, challenge. And Kline is supposed to have said, uh, well, if I paint what you know already, that will be really boring for you. If I paint what I know already, that will be really boring for me. Therefore, I paint what I don't know. Right. And I sort of feel that's quite a good thing. If I can write what I don't know, I'll find this thing, as George Saunders says, that will be smarter than me. Yeah. But somehow it will be mine. I will have had those thoughts. So I'll have, I'll have grown as a person with some
1: understanding of the world, I think, by writing the poem, if oh, it's any good. Is that, I mean, is that one of the kind of guiding principles behind all the work that you've done in creative writing? You know, right from the beginning with the, the first course that you started teaching at Victoria? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, one, one of the
2: things that I've always done in, in the writing workshop world is, is give people the equivalent of, of a poetry commission, I suppose, what you were talking about. So make people write stuff that they would not think to write, make them jump the tracks, make them go sideways from their sensible selves. And the first exercise I thought of like that uh, was to make everybody write a haiku using only the words they could find on the racing page of the newspaper. So good, they produced this fantastic stuff. But they were very reluctant to do it because people still cling to this idea that the poem is an outpouring of personal emotion which you know, dignifies the poet, dignifies the world. But it has to—you know—Hera Lindsay Bird has to be Hera Lindsay Bird. Emily Dickinson has to be Emily Dickinson, rather than—I think she called herself—I think she said in her poems, "When I state myself as the representative of the verse, it does not mean me, but a supposed person." Mm-hmm. Uh, so I—I I, I enjoyed making students, because I had the power, I was the teacher, uh, do these things uh, which turned them into other persons in order to write something. And they surprised themselves and produced work that mattered yeah. to them, uh, yeah. rather than just saying, fill, fill white pages every day and we'll, we'll give you a degree at the end of the year. Mm. That, that'd be fun. Yeah. You know?
1: um, I, th- I thought it would be interesting to revisit the whole history of that, you know, of your creative writing teaching, because people take it for granted now. I mean. Um, you know, many people know that so many uh, contemporary New Zealand writers have done those courses, uh, but, you know, th- they date back to when? Is it mid-70s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So how did, they, how did they start out? Well, uh, <laughs> they started
2: because a very charismatic professor of English at Victoria, Don Mackenzie, had done his graduate work at Cambridge University, and at Cambridge University, you can, as Sylvia Plath did, submit a small manuscript of original work for your d- degree in English. It's not graded, but it can't count against you, but it can count for you. so she did that, and Don Mackenzie thought this would be rather a good thing to do at Victoria University, so uh, yeah, it, it was arranged, but it was only available to English majors, so you had to have passed a course in 18th century English poetry at second-year level in order to have the right to produce a small manuscript, which you would then submit for assessment. Uh, That ran for a couple of years. Uh, I remember the department being terrified because one student submitted a manuscript of 25 one-line poems, and they didn't know what to do with that. (laughs) Didn't sound like Alexander Pope, uh, for example. And anyway, the the students themselves started getting stroppy, as students do, and they they started saying things like, hey, we're all doing this thing, but we never get to meet. This is ridiculous. We're sort of in our little silos writing these things, but we never talk to each other. So everyone thought this was a reasonable request, and I was detailed off as the person in the department who thought they could write. You know, not because my colleagues thought I could write, but... (laughs) Anyway, so so I started managing these meetings uh, and there were some very stroppy people in the room, people like Jamie Balich, for example, were were taking this option along the way. Uh, And uh, at at one stage, someone, and it may have been Jamie, I can't remember, said... So I was just managing these meetings and, fantastic, everyone wanted to be in the room, which was not the case with a stage one tutorial on King Lear, for example. So they're all there, and uh, whoever it was said, I wonder what would happen if we all had to write the same thing. And everyone agreed we should give this a go, so I set whatever it was. It might have been the haiku exercise, but it was something that I insisted on. And everyone, it might have been one of the five, there's an exercise I used to do called Five Things, and everybody had to write a piece of prose, which would incorporate someone claiming to be a close friend of Margaret Mahey, uh, a child standing in water, the Oxford Dictionary of Saints, uh, a stepladder but no one's on it, and so on, five things, uh, which you would think would force everybody to come to the same sort of position. But in fact, people solve a problem like that completely differently. So everyone went off in totally different directions, produced this astonishing work, which was totally different, and uh, I suddenly realized that the thing about a creative writing workshop is not that you want to make people come out the other end writing like you. You want to find ways of making them write about, uh, write in the way that is totally theirs. And so I think if there's any kind of ethos inside the courses, it's that people, people are encouraged by everyone in the room. Each person is encouraged by everyone else in the room to find the best ways of becoming the writer they want to become. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But that's what we go for. Mm-hmm. I saw someone complaining on, on the web the other day, uh, an aspiring writer, sa- saying something like, and I'm going to be a proper writer, not one of those writing-by-numbers people that come through Bill Menhier's courses.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and it, It's so completely the opposite of what, what is the case that it's a bit sad, really. Yeah. But most people think creative writing courses Produce clones, but
1: well, yeah. she doesn't sound like me. I have yeah. to say. <laughs> so, Hera, what, what was it like for you? I mean, you know, the the legend was that Bill sat silently. Oh,
2: I wasn't in the in corner. The room. <laughs> he, no. Yeah. was taught by what well, taught. Or, oh, I see. You know, so you were a you a director back. at that stage, Bill? Yeah. And, I, yeah. I was the big boss, but yeah, uh, no, I, I wasn't. I wasn't in that particular EMA right. workshop. Uh-huh.
0: No. I think the only time um, I ever saw. Bill in the classes at the, very, the party at the very beginning of the year and he came up with a little tray of samosas and he offered me one silently. Um, and then for the rest of the year I just had um, Bernadette Hall who isn't the usual poetry teacher. It was when Chris Price was away on her Menton Fellowship so um, yeah I had Bernadette for a year and she was fantastic. I had a great time. Yeah.
1: yeah. So what did, that, what did that do for your work Hero? I mean what, what did you get out of that year?
0: Um, I think it just... I don't, I don't think that it's essential to do creative writing courses, but I think it speeds up the process. And also having, you know, if you're a young person, like, you, you, there's just no other circumstances in which you can afford to take a year off to write, really. Um, so it was, it was time, and um, it was being forced to hand something in every week, and it was a kind of a, just like a really good community of writers. Like, I met Gregory Kahn in one of those classes, and we've just been best friends ever since. Um, That wasn't the MA, that was actually a previous one. I met my partner in one of those early classes. Um, But it's just, the other thing was just being introduced to 12 other people's taste in poetry and fiction, which is an enormous gift. Just people would make reading packets um, and you'd kind of select your kind of favourite 50 poems and everyone would be forced to read them and talk about them for two hours. But it just kind of expanded my reading enormously.
1: Yeah. And, and you had a kind of mixing of poets and fiction writers, I guess Bill right from the start, you had both in, in one class sometimes, did you? yeah, till yeah. or maybe seven or eight years ago mm-hmm.
2: yeah yeah I, I loved making the poets write fiction and the fiction poets write poetry, and yeah the poets write little bits of memoir. I, I thought that kind of but they 're in their silos now aren 't they? The yeah. poets are in one group, and uh,
0: well, when I did that <laughs> I, I think the reason I got in that year was there was a really, there was no one applied for poetry apparently, so I think I kind of managed to sneak <laughs> in because um, actually the, fo- the folio I submitted to get into that course wasn't very good. Um, so there were about six poets, but then there was a mix of kind of fiction writers and memoirists, which I really enjoyed actually. I kind of think that um, it made the year a lot more interesting having a kind of a number of people working on really different stuff.
1: And some people came into the course thinking that they were going to be poets and jumped the fence, didn't they? And the, yeah. other, and the other way around as well? Yeah, 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 that's yeah. very satisfying.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact, I think in the MA, not so long ago, Henemoa Moana Baker came in determined to be a, a great short story writer and came at the end of the MA with, 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 a, with a, maybe
1: her first book of poems. I right, yeah, cool. So. And didn't Barbara Anderson go the other way? She Uh, wanted to write poems at at first, didn't she? Yeah, she wanted to write poems. And uh, the great thing with Barbara
2: Anderson, I think, was that we we got someone up from Radio New Zealand who did a session with the students on on radio drama and writing dialogue. Uh, And she was just so amazing at dialogue. I mean, Barbara was severely deaf, but she had the best ear I've ever come across in a New Zealand writer. And she could write this ruthless, Mm -hmm. charming, choreographed dialogue, and suddenly, Fiction was the way she went. I imag- I've never done it, but I imagine if you went to her stories, especially the early ones, you'd find a lot of people talking to each other, and talking past each other as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And for, for both of you, I mean, how how does poetry and how do poetry and fiction kind of sit beside each other? Bill, you've written quite a lot of fiction. Mm-hmm. That was seems to me it was kind of like a phase. I mean, it was quite intense for what, late eighties, early nineties.
2: Kind of yeah. Time. Well, I'd simply got bored with my own poems, and I could do a very good imitation of one of my own poems. And I, you know, I was really sick of it, so I, I tried short stories. Also, I wanted money, and there were a lot of short story competitions around at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And sometimes I got second prize, which that was good. Uh, but also the thing that I, I loved about short stories, which I realize is in the poems as well, to some extent, is uh, you know, when I was a, a high school kid, uh, the stuff that really excited me and a lot of my friends was uh, comedians doing mimicry—you know, the Goon Show or Peter Sellers—and putting on voices. And that just seemed to me the the heart of you know everything. You know, so sophisticated. And I think I think writing short stories allowed me to put on voices much more than poetry did. Poetry had you had to sort of pretend that you were you, but in a short story you could, you know, you could do as Frank Sargeson did and pretend that this was a person who was not you with a certain vocabulary range and, you know, so I, I love being a 17-year-old girl in one story or a, or a young woman with a, with, a, with a precocious primary school son whose husband had left her in another story. That kind of what-if that you can do in fiction, which I've never quite had the courage to do in
1: poetry. That was good for me. Yeah. And then there's this question of your novel which you recently said... I found this on... on, uh, You wrote this recently. Someone asked you what was the book you would most wish someone would write. And you said, A novel set in the 1950s in New Zealand's South Island. The young Elizabeth Windsor is in hiding there, possibly in the general vicinity of Mossburn and the Southern Lakes, while her sister Margaret has seized the throne in a bloody insurrection in which (laughs) kilted Scottish warriors have done all the damage. The military commander, known as the Galoglach, is now headquartered in Lanark's Castle on the Otago Peninsula, leading the hunt for Elizabeth, also known as Elizabeth Highness. And Bill said, I wrote the first few chapters of this about 20 years ago and would be pleased if someone would get to work and finish it for me.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> has has yeah. anyone know, written in and offered to...
2: No, but if there's anyone in the room that's willing to have a go, I'll I'll give you every assistance, you know.
1: It's true, I did write the
2: first couple of chapters of that. But you can see why I abandoned it,
1: really. (laughs) Are there any other, I mean, do you have any other kind of temptations to write novels? You know, any novels in your head that you'd like to write?
2: No, not really. I, I sometimes use Twitter to threaten that I'm working on my campus novel hoping that this will terrify, <laughs> terrify all my ex-colleagues at Victoria University. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Hera's probably working on a novel set in a creative writing workshop somewhere <laughs> at this very moment.
1: Yeah. Um, well, just sort of jumping the tracks a little bit, I wanted to, to ask Bill about his collaboration and friendship with Ralph Holtry because Bill's new book, um, Whoops, Some Things to Place in a Coffin, Got this amazing cover with a, an image by Ralph Hottery, and the title poem is, uh, is, is about Ralph Hottery. Would mm. you like to read the, the poem? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, Ralph died,
2: <coughs> as I guess people know, a little over four years ago, and uh, he had two funerals. He had a funeral in Dunedin. Uh, who farewelled him, uh, I mean the people of Dunedin, friends down there, and he had the Mitty Mitty funeral. I was only able to get to the where he came in by helicopter, if you remember. <laughs> he would have loved that boy. Uh, and uh, I got to the Dunedin funeral and, and was, was involved in various ways. Uh, but I, I was talking afterwards to a couple of the people who had been pallbearers. And I guess everyone knows if you've had that slightly unsettling privilege but it is a privilege of being a pallbearer you you discover how heavy the person you care for is and ralph seemed very light you know you felt that when he died many years after the big stroke that uh, you know disabled him you felt that his bones were hollow but anyway but apparently he was really really heavy and uh, it was discovered that a lot of the reason he was heavy was that a lot of extra stuff had been put in the coffin, <laughs> including, uh, I think, I believe, a couple of golf clubs. And I have it on absolute authority from someone who knows that there were two bottles of Central Otago Pinot Noir in there. <laughs> so I, I wrote a poem for Ralph in, in, in his memory, and I just put a whole lot of stuff into a coffin that, that I knew of from his life, really. Uh, so, some things to place in a coffin. Hardboard and canvas, some lead head nails, a blowtorch, a spray gun, a grinder, a glass of pinot noir, a boat with a motor, a boat with sails, France and Spain, some locker, some lacquer, a fishing rod, a hammer, the dog, Mathew. timber and bricks, a tiger moth, some rope, some sky, some ocean, the stations of the cross, a coil of number eight wire, a slowness, a suddenness, a concentrating grunt, Vidya party song, smoke and flags and banners, the far north, the deep south, harbour cone, a homemade home the bishop, the knight, the rook, a black Union Jack, a circle, a line, a cross, some words and numbers, some corrugations, nailed down with iron against the rain, nailed down with rain, with daisies, with weather, with gold, with an old window frame.
1: Your uh, connection with Ralph goes way back, went way back, didn't it?
2: Oh, that very first book, as you said, was was, was a sort of collaboration.
1: Melody? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, and it just went on from there, really. Mm-hmm. We had this very nice arrangement whereby Ralph would use any of my words that he wanted in paintings, and that was, that was terrifically wonderful for me, you know. Much better publisher than Fergus Barrowman and VUP. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and... Uh, I, I could use any of his images in anything I wanted. So I slapped one of his things on the cover of this book four years after he was dead, but, uh, and didn't ask anyone permission, I'm afraid. But uh, so that was a good deal, and every so often he would, he would, he would pay me a kind of uh, fee with, with a painting. So yeah, that was, what a good collaboration that was. That's excellent, yeah, yeah. yeah, terrific. But it was a, it was a quiet, Grunting. It wasn't a sort of let's get together and talk feverishly about what we'll do, and you know, do a SWOT analysis of what might be possible with this project. And yeah. We just sat in a room and grunted, and occasionally, <laughs> you know, drank a bottle of no, a glass of something,
1: you know, <laughs> and grunted again. Yeah. That sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Because lines of lines of your early poems pop up uh, quite often I mean, in, in quite a lot of his paintings. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that's nice. I never know where they're going to be. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, just while you've got the book in your hands, I wondered, uh, going back to the public-private theme, this new book has got a, a terrific public sort of poem called Known Unto God. What, what were the circumstances of that? Was, was it kind of a commission? That was was a total
2: commission from, uh, I can't remember their name now, but the organization in the UK that is managing cultural and artistic works about World War I. Uh, so I got written to by them, and basically what they were doing was, was looking for poets from a number of the combatant nations from the Battle of the Somme, and they wanted each of those poets to, to write a poem, obviously. Uh, and I don't know, I'd, I'd been pretty cynical about the World War I, thing. You know, I, I, you know, the moment the commemoration started, I went around saying to people, like, I can't wait for World War I to be over, you know, and, <laughs> and very pathetic, really. Uh, and it seems even more pathetic to me now that I've read and thought, and, I mean, my sense of World War I was Wilfred Owen and Blackadder, really, and that's not quite enough. Uh, and, and the horrors of Anzac Day when I was a child. Uh, so, yeah, I was, I was commissioned to do that, and I said yes. and Shall I t- tell you how I yeah. went about it? Because, of course, I read a lot, and there's some terrific uh, history writing done in New Zealand about World War I, some great stuff. So that was good, and that was kind of humbling. Uh, read a lot of soldiers' letters home, and it was interesting to be in that world where they needed to find language to talk to mothers and fathers and sweethearts and wives about what was going on, but they didn't want to use language that would distress too much. You know, so that whole problem of finding the words was a real poetry problem. So uh, that was interesting. Uh, but and, oh, and at one stage, I remember reading uh, about how the New Zealand troops were called the Silent Battalion, I think it was. And It was thought that, I think they were fairly laconic, but it was also suggested they didn't sing as they marched, which I find improbable, but any, at one stage I thought I would write uh, some songs for them to sing, if that was so, and, uh, but I came up with stuff like, oh, I dug my way through rimu, I dug my way through pine, and every nail in Jesus' hand was also nailed through mine. Something like that, like really bad Leonard Cohen. you know. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, this is, this is a bit anachronistic somehow. Eventually, I, I, I came across something that I, I bet lots of people know about, but I didn't, which is that across Belgium and France, there are many gravestones which just say uh, a New Zealand soldier of the Great War known unto God. So several hundred graves where it's known that it's a New Zealand body under the ground, but it's not known who it is. Uh, and so I thought I would try writing some words to go on their gravestones, really. Uh, maybe words to put in their coffins. Uh, and, and, and that's what I did, really. Uh, so uh, oh, the other thing, maybe I'll, I'll just say a couple more things about the poem before I read it. Uh, we were invited by the commissioning group to, as it were, bring the Battle of the Somme up to date, or. or think if there are any lessons to be learned that might apply to the contemporary world. And so that was something that was in my mind. Uh, and, and you'll hear that at the end, where I, the, the voice turns from a soldier's voice into what I think of as the voice of a 12-year-old girl in the, in the contemporary Mediterranean. Uh, and what, a couple of, couple of just small references. There's a, there's a little bit of Māori in, in the course of the poem where someone says, kia a hatia, which just means, so what? Who cares? What does it matter? Uh, the Māori were there, and they did all the digging. They were the first people called diggers. And then the word digger was attached to the New Zealand troops generally, and then to Australian and New Zealand troops. And now the Australians seem to own it. But, it started with the Maori diggers. Uh, and, and the other thing uh, in this that I should perhaps explain is that people may remember when the unknown warrior came home a few years ago. He was buried outside uh, beside the Carillion in Wellington. Uh, and for a few weeks after he was put in his tomb, uh, he got to know the local skateboarders who came at midnight across the tomb. And they have now been sorted out. But That's who's speaking at that point. I'm I'm going to read the poem. There's a a little epigraph from Walt Whitman which says, to you, your name also, did you think there was nothing but two or three pronunciations in the sound of your name? (coughs) Known unto God, boy on horseback, boy on a bicycle, boy all the way from Tolliger Bay, blown to bits in a minute. Once I was small bones in my mother's body, just taking a nap. Now my feet can't find the sap. In Devil's Wood, I broke my leg and went beneath a tank, strange beast. Last thing I heard was the guns all going, you know, blankety, blankety, blank. My last letter home turned out entirely pointless. I wrote, whiz-bang a dozen times to try and say the noises. Well, I was here from the start, amazing, straight off the farm at Tyre Mouth. I lifted my head and ran like the blazes, went south. I whistled while I could. Then I was gone for good. So strange to be underground and single and dreaming of Dunedin. Such a picnic, the last thing I saw was a tin of ideal milk. I remember my father and my mother. They yelled, they cursed, my whole head hurt. Up on the wire, I couldn't hear a thing. I, who had spent my whole life listening. They dug me up in Caterpillar Valley and brought me home. Well, all of the visible bits of me, now people arrive at dawn. The mic's gone funny, has it? Now people arrive at dawn and sing, and I have a new word, skateboarding. Mm -hmm. Not all of me is here inside. I built Turk Lane before I died. Kia hatia. Somewhere between Colombo and Cairo, The ocean seemed to dip. I thought I could hear the stamping of horses coming from it. They taught me how to say, Refugee. Then my father and mother floated away from me. This was on the way to Lampedusa. By now we were all at sea. We were all at sea. They called out, while they could, they called out while they could. Then they were gone for good.
1: I should, I should add, there's also that wonderful short film that people can see on the internet that was made. It's kind of like an animated film yeah, uh, right. with, is it Stella Duffy? Stella Duffy voices it, yeah, yeah.
2: So, so there's a female voice at the end, which yeah, is... Yeah, you should uh, really check right. that out, it's it's
1: yeah. fabulous. Yeah. yeah, I thought I'd just ask Bill and Hira one question each, or one question, the same question to each of them, before we uh, ask for questions from the audience. And it's like, what comes next? Hero, you said that you um, At one stage, you're writing a children's detective novel. Is that still underway?
0: Um, It's something that I would love to do. I'm a children's bookseller, and I love kind of... um, My favourite genre of children's books is kind of art crimes for 11-year-olds. But actually, at the moment, I just kind of... um, I don't know. After publishing my book, I've just kind of... um, been obsessed with writing more, more and more poetry. So I think that that will kind of, I don't know, I think, I think that it's, I have kind of lots of plans, but it's bad to talk about them, isn't it? Because then you feel like when you say them out loud, you've done them and people kind of congratulate you for them before you've finished anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that I'd like to um, kind of take some time away though, and maybe kind of go travelling and, yeah, just, I've, be, I've been having to do kind of pretty constant output this year, and I don't think that it, that's kind of a healthy way to work, really.
2: Mm-hmm. Am I right to think that you're going to be published in the UK and North America soon?
0: Well, mm-hmm. fingers crossed. Yeah.
2: Because right. <laughs> that'll keep you busy, If, you, if you, you know, if you have to go across for the launches and things, won't
0: it? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're hoping that it will. Um, kind of happened at the the end of this year, still pending on contract signing, etc. but, yeah.
1: Right. And so would you change the book at all, or would it be the same book? Um.
0: Well, the first thing that I would do is I spelt someone's name wrong in the acknowledgements, so (laughs) I have to change that immediately. Um, But I think that, I mean, I could tinker endlessly with the book. There are lots of things that I probably would change, but I think that maybe it's better just to kind of um, leave it as it is and Mm. kind of pour all of that nervous energy into new work, perhaps.
1: Right. And what about you, Bill? Just more poems? Yeah, along with the campus novel Because <laughs> yeah. 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 I remember you, you, was it on Twitter, you, you um, had a competition for titles for your campus novel.
2: Yeah, that nothing was, good enough to really get no. me going. <laughs> there were a lot of entries.
1: Yeah, yeah. cool.
0: I think the International Institute of Modern Letters is a pretty, a pretty amazing title anyway, isn't it? It's such a strange...
1: It's, completely <laughs> it's no longer bizarre. called that, though, is it? Isn't it? What's it called?
0: The Bill Mannhire. Oh,
1: the house. You yeah. Oh, the building. Yeah, yeah. the building. Yeah. building. Yeah. But no, it's, building still, the, it's still
2: the International Institute of oh, Modern Good. Letters. Yeah. And that came about in a complicated, silly way, too, too long to go into, but basically a very wealthy American uh, casino magnate turned up with a lot of money, which he was offering the university. If the Victoria Creative Writing Programme would become part of this conglomerate he was setting up called the Institute of Modern Letters. And Victoria, of course, said yes, (laughs) because they they wanted the money. So we had this thing called the Institute of Modern Letters. And then the casino magnate got the Nobel Prize winner, Wale Shoyinka involved. And Wale Shoyinka said, we must have the word international in there. So suddenly it became the International Institute of Modern Letters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think you should add an I every 10 years. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: the incandescent International <laughs> Institute of Modern Letters. <gasps> yeah, that would
1: be good. Cool. I'd just like you to all join me in thanking um, Bill and Hira.
0: Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.